So good evening, everyone. It feels so warm and cozy in here, <laughs> doesn't it? It's like, wow, nice. Uh, and for a moment, our prayers have been answered. We're safe and protected, right? In this moment, in this beautiful space together. And even though it's about a hundred of us, there's this cozy feeling. <laughs> So it's from your practice, it's from our time together. And so tonight I wanted to share um, some stories about compassion and to talk about compassion. And I feel this emotion really strong. Just during the last sitting I was doing a compassion practice and, and it was evoked even more on my way uh, I went to my house, which is right here in Woodacre, and I came back. I just went to pick up some things and come back. And I saw um, all these cars in the road, and I saw a deer that had been hit by a car. And the deer was lying upright. It couldn't get up, you know, but it was very awake. And then I saw all these people pulling over, and they were like, how can I help? And the rain was coming. It was right when the rain started really strong, you know. It was one of those big bucks, too. And I just felt like, as I drove by, it was, again, the fragility of life. You know, and, but also what it reminded me was how, in these moments, all these people pulled over. There was probably ten cars. Like, what can I do? <laughs> you know, how can we get the deer off the road? <laughs> right? Or, how, or where do, what do we do? Right? And it was just, again, you know, there's... There's a lot of suffering in the world. And at the same time, there's all these people going, how can I help? <laughs> right? In a disaster or a situation in, in your life, right? You're stuck on the side of the road, cars line up, how can I help? Do you need a phone? Do you need, you know, and it, it just reminded me of that it's easy to get pessimistic, but in the midst of even the worst difficulty, there's acts of compassion happening constantly, right? Hearts opening. And um, so I found that sweet. I couldn't stop in that moment, but I thought of the deer, and I was sending metta and compassion um, for this, this animal. I love the deer, and my, where, I, where I live, they come right through the yard and hang out, and, you know, it's like, Yes, hi, you too are my friends. Um, so this feeling is as strong in me these days, this feeling of this heart energy and the compassion that we naturally develop on this path. If you sit long enough and you meet your own suffering again and again, you see that the most skillful response is compassion. You just start to see every other strategy is useless. Everything. You can fight it, you can resist it, you can suppress it, you could act it out, it just creates more. And then there comes this wisdom, well, let me just be with this. Let me, let me be with the way things are. And there's insight in that, there's wisdom in that because we start to wake up to that as the most skillful response. It actually takes us time. We will go to every other response before we choose that one. We actually have to train in that, <laughs> right? We'll do 
you know, and sometimes when we're at home, we'll, you know, do everything to distract ourselves from something that's arising, you know. And it's like, oh, can I, can I meet this? And the more, of course, the more we meet it in ourselves, the more we can be there for others, right? The more we can be there for what's happening in the world with a brave heart, with a fierce heart. I'm writing a book right now called A Fierce Heart. And I keep thinking, like, is this, what does this really mean? What is it I'm really saying? What is a fierce heart? The heart that can meet all conditions. Um, and it may take me a long time to finish this. <laughs> one of those 10 year sagas <laughs> i'm open to that like it's teaching me right as i'm it's working me and i'm learning what is the depth of compassion and as i mentioned on the first night i feel like i'm still a kindergartner i'm still learning the, what the power of this quality actually is the depth of this how is this so transformative and as I continually work with myself and I keep meeting the insane parts of my mind, <laughs> I start to bow deeper and deeper to this quality. Right? Now I just say, compassion, you are the great chief. I bow, <laughs> prostrate, full on the ground, head, the feet of the mother, right? Just stay like that, you know? And we come to this humility over time, and we're, especially when we're doing these heart practices. You know, we meet so many, uh, it takes so much to be human. We have to like feel and we experience things, right? And there's no getting out of it. <laughs> You're alive on this planet, you have to feel, right? And we're, we're like these receptors, we're like these, you know, and we just keep having to be alive is continually feeling. And, and to have insight into compassion in this quality of care like I care about this pain and the near enemy of what's called the near enemy is this kind of pity it can look like compassion but it's not true compassion because there's a lack of understanding the interconnectedness right so it's like oh those poor people over there wow yeah you guys really have it hard not understanding that that could be us in the next moment there's a there's a the a ignorance in that like no everything happens to everybody on this you know earth plane right we all experience things um, and you know we make jokes the teachers and I were like oh this is high class dukkha <laughs> but it's still suffering you know dukkha is the word for suffering right and um, we we learn this. How to, how to open more and more. And so I want to share a story that is really, I haven't told this story in maybe four or five years. I, I used to tell it some. It was a transformative moment for me, and it's only been recently that I realized actually how impactful it was. It was really a first genuine insight I had into compassion, and it really changed me in a lot of ways. And I was 13 years old at the time, and um, when I was 13, I got in trouble for shoplifting. And I, it was actually, I was actually trying to get a gift for someone, and I had no money. And, and I'm, I'm not just like 
rationalizing this, right? But a friend of mine talked me into it, told me how it was so easy and took me to the store and basically was like excited, right, for me to do this. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I don't have money. And, you know, and it was, um, it was a gift I wanted to give to someone that I had a crush on that, you know, it was like a Valentine's present. And I wasn't very good at it and walked in in front of everyone and tried to leave and got in trouble, right? <laughs> And um, <laughs> and then they called my mom at work, and my mom was a single parent, right, very stressed out, and she was like, what? And I had to stay sitting in the back of the store for hours while my mother, you know, was like, I'll come after work, goodbye, right, keep her there. <laughs> so I was like, oh, she's really mad, oh, no, and so she was, right, and she was like, you're going to work this off. So they gave me huge hours of community service, right? And so my mother was uh, decided that I would do this community service at Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco. So for those of you who are out of town, this is this beautiful church started by uh, Reverend Cecil, just who's such a beautiful person in it. And it was in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco, right? And so this, back in the day, was the worst neighborhood in San Francisco. It was basically addicts, prostitutes, hustlers, you name it. I mean, it was going on in this neighborhood. And um, he built this beautiful church and an outreach ministry right in the middle of it, right? And was had this very uh, affirming message. Everybody was welcome, gay, straight, HIV, hurt, you know, all able-bodied, all ethnicities. He just welcomed everybody, and he started a whole outreach program of services. Um, and... And so this was when I was 13. So this was a long time ago. The neighborhood has cleaned up a bit since then. But at this time, it was it was pretty rough. And so my mother was like, you're going to go there and you're going to work it off every weekend, you know. And I thought, all right. So she drops me off there early one Saturday morning to do community service the whole day. And they had a soup kitchen that was running and um, so I get into, and I'm, you know, I'm 13, and I get into uh, the kitchen, and there's all these people in there, these volunteers. And these are a group of people who um, have been through the depths, hell and back, right? They are former addicts, former junkies, or just people who had transformed their lives. And so many of them had these scars and missing teeth and and as I walked in, I was like, hi. And they just gave me this huge hug. And I just loved all of them immediately. I was like, I'm happy to be here. For me, it was kind of exciting. It didn't feel like a punishment. I, I kind of, it was like action going on, you know, in the streets at 9 a.m. were full of, full on, like a Saturday night. I mean, day and night, this neighborhood was going, right? And there was prostitution happening and drug deals. And it was just rampant, right? It was just how it was. And so we're in there, and um, so the idea was we clean the kitchen, we get ready, we make lunch, and then the, um, the soup kitchen, the service line, opened and was serving meals. And so we went in there, and we cleaned up. And again, these people are volunteers who have come, and they've got clean, and now they're just full of light and energy, and like, yes, let's serve the people. And so I was like, okay, great. After we clean the kitchen, we're like, what's for lunch? And so they go in the back, and they get these, like, military-sized cans of pork and beans. I'm like, wow, oh, wow, okay, this is it. And then they had heaps of day-old bread, 
right? So this, they didn't have a lot then. This was just stuff that was given to them. And then they had packs and packs of hot dogs. So I was like, wow, okay, this is pretty meager, right? Just the old bread, hot dogs, and all these beans. So I was like, okay, well, let's just do it. You know, I had no idea how many people would come or what was going to happen. So we started heating up the beans, opening these giant cans, and putting the hot dogs in the water, and we're getting everything set up for the line of people. And, um, and we're talking, and, and I'm hearing stories about people who's like, you know, they would say, Jesus came and shook me out of my, you know, this and walked me to the door of Glide and I opened it and, you know, these stories of redemption. And I just, I was so touched. These people to me had spirit. You know, there was a realness that I appreciated, like, and a love that was, I felt immediately, a kinship, right? It didn't matter where they had been. It was where they were now, right? Serving and helping and and alive, alive, I liked that. And um, it was also one of those really cold days in San Francisco, kind of like how it's been here. So it was rainy and windy, and, and San Francisco can get really cold, like this foggy, wet cold. And so as we got closer and closer to starting the lunch service, uh, I went outside and I looked, and out of nowhere, there was a line of maybe 200 people. And I immediately was like, where did all these people come from? Right? It was like lined all the way down the block. I couldn't believe it. And as I looked, you know, people were kind of huddled against the, the wall a little bit because it was cold, right? And I was like, wow, this is, these people are coming for such a meager meal. Okay, so we go back inside and we start. And I was scooping the beans on the plate. That was my job. And I was trying to cheer people up, actually. I was smiling at them. I thought, well, I, like, I felt happy for some reason to be there. And so, but people were not smiling, right? Their eyes were really downcast. And uh, people were coming in uh, and pretty quickly. And they would some, there were some tables they could sit, but others just took it in a styrofoam plate and went out. So it was like a little to-go plate. It didn't even have a cover on it. So they would go right out into the cold and just eat outside. And um, I was really surprised when I saw children in the line. I hadn't prepared for that mentally. So when I saw children that felt like they had rips in their jackets and tattered, and something about that started to make me, I started to feel sadness for that. Like, oh, well, where are these people going? So the line was just coming fast then, right? Faster and faster. And we were giving them two pieces of bread, two hot dogs, and two scoops of beans. That was what the chef guy called out. But then what happened was so many people were coming, we were starting to run out of food. And so the, the volunteer in the back, he said, one piece of bread, one hot dog, one scoop now. And I was like, but the line was still like moving kind of fast, right? And so I'm like, one scoop, okay, one. That went on for a while. And then he said, you should cut all the hot dogs in half now. Ah, and it just, it was like, oh no, and we ran out. Yeah, that was it, right? And so the people that were at the end of the line, they just kind of, you know, they went to the door and they were like, sorry, and then they just wandered off. And I just sat there for a while, and then we cleaned up. And then I went out on the the sidewalk, and I just burst into tears at some point. 
right? I just, I just something about the whole thing. And I, not like I hadn't seen street people or hadn't seen this. I had seen this, but there was something about the food running out and the kids and the line. And what the insight was that really shook me to my core was how much I love these people. And it was the insight I had was I don't know them though, but I deeply loved them. Like I wanted them to be happy and okay and I wanted to help in some way. And it didn't matter that I didn't, they weren't my friends or related. It was like each person I had this sense of like, I, I love you, I wish you well. And as people wandered off, I wondered, well, are they going to eat today? Or, and, you know, some of the staff came outside and they were just cheering me out. They were like, yeah, they're going to be all right. You know, you just trust that we do what we can and it's volunteer and that's all the food we had. And, you know, but in my heart, I wanted this to be alleviated, this type of suffering, right? This, like in me, there was this really strong desire to alleviate that and um, how much I cared about each person, even though I didn't know them. And that struck me that I could love people on the other side of the world. (laughs) I could love people in my community that I didn't know, that I could actually care about them. And that, that was a waking up for me. And so I was there a few more weekends, and then and then, you know, as all 13-year-olds, we get self-absorbed again. You know, I was off, you know. But there was something about that experience for those few months of being there on the weekends and, and having similar experience the week after and, and meeting the, the people who work there and being so touched that there was a humility that opened up in me around life and looking not just focused on myself so much of the time. You know, there's a way in which um, we can become so fixated and we don't, we look around um, and our own suffering is very compelling. We need to have compassion for that. But there's also a way in which compassion opens a window uh, into this altruistic feeling, right, of other. We start to share our burden with others, right? So it's not like I'm the only one suffering. It's like here we are suffering, And I think that's the difference um, where we get stuck is that when we feel certain things, we isolate and believe we're the only one. But where your suffering can be instrumental is to move out into how many people right now are feeling this on the planet. You see, so it takes the heart and it opens it in this experience of pain, right? We are all experiencing loneliness. We experience trauma right? We experience these feelings, this body when it's hurting, right? So we move from the individual out into the collective. And I think that's a very powerful shift um, to start to see the universality of experience in some way. So I love that... um, you know, as we work with our emotions and we work with our ourselves, we we start to see our capacity to meet the difficult. Right? I love this quote um, by Havitz. He says, "Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you living in better conditions." Right? <laughs> so the truth is, we're afraid to open the heart. 
It's like, oh no, <laughs> like what door am I walking through? What am I going to have to feel here, right? And so our barriers are rooted in our fear, fear of being seen, fear of feeling too much, fear of getting hurt, right? Fear of annihilation. Like I open and then what? We have so many defenses. I'll never forget, um, you know, when you grow up, I grew up really with a lot of trauma and urban environment and my mother and, you know, just the long story, like a father ran off and like the whole, like the classic situation, right? Like, oh no. You know, and I remember looking around at a young age being like, okay, you've got to really grow up fast now. (laughs) Like, because this is not so dependable. And I became adult at a young age, like very self-sufficient. I got a full-time like job in the summer when I was 12 and a half, you know, I was like mature, like, okay, I've got to make my own money and figure this out. And, and, um, but what happens to that kind of experience? And many of you have had experiences where things happen to us when we're young is that we put an armor around us. Yeah. We build a, a very, I talked about this in a group. It's like, we build an elaborate alarm system <laughs> with missiles and uh, a moat around that and dragons and, and, and we're just waiting, right? But what happens over time, at first it feels safe. We're on the other side. It's as if we had a security system all around here. Wouldn't that be weird? Security guards outside. And, but that's how our inner terrain is, right? But the ego is doing it, right? It's monitoring everything, right? And we're looking for threats at all times, scanning, right? And something gets too close, we fire off some shots, right? Warning shots. And so we have this. And I remember uh, a few years ago, I was on um, a three-month retreat alone in a cabin in Crestone, Colorado. It was epic. I was, it was like a three-month vision quest that never ended. It was just like, you think these days were long? These, one day there was like a week long. It was so intense, and my mind was just awake, and there was so much purification happening, massive amounts of tears and terror, and, and I was just sitting with all of that. But I remember one night on this, this retreat, um, I had this dream and um, this dream was that this beautiful deva came, the celestial deva, and she, she was like the classic, you know, bright, radiant deva, and she looked at me and she said, so would you like to let all your weapons go? <laughs> and I thought, and I had been through so much, it did not take long, a second I said yes, because I had suffered at the hands of those weapons, because you know what, what happens is the weapons turn toward us right? That's their main target, actually. And, but we don't realize that yet, right? We, we're, we're, we're like, we don't see it. So I had been through so much, and I was also doing a prostration practice. I was prostrating hours, taking refuge, and going through all this. So I immediately said, take everything, right? All the weapons. And then for the next 30 minutes, all these things came out of my heart chakra, it was like they, they were pouring out armies, military, like medieval torture devices, all kinds of war instruments, like things that bonk you on the head and weird swords. And it was just like, ah, it was just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, like a huge amount of violent things, right? It was just coming out. 
And I remember I woke up. I wasn't sleeping very much on this retreat. So I just dozed off for a few hours and then I woke up. Uh, I wasn't eating that much on the retreat. So my mind was just awake. And as I came to wake up, I was shaking on the earth. Like, what am I going to do now? Like, it's all gone, right? And I felt this annihilate. Like, what? I was naked. You know, the heart is like, oh, but then I started to realize, now you want to get rid of that stuff, Spring. <laughs> this is good. That's a symbol of the purification practice is working. It was a sign. It was a sign. Like, yes, lay down your weapons. <laughs> right? We're just hurting ourselves. So this is a, it's a beautiful practice, what we're doing here. And to see compassion as a medicine is really key. It's a shift in, in, in how we, what, we're, what we're taking refuge in, actually. And we know that the Buddha's one of his favorite lines is, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Right? By love alone is healed. Right? What can love not heal? Because we keep opening. We keep disarming ourselves. And I'm still finding places all the time where I have this hard, hard knots. And I love that now when I find these stones in my heart. It's like, oh, good. Yeah. Oh, it hurts a lot. But let's go in there because that's what my practice is about. May all these walls fall. Right? All these veils, all these illusions, all these fears. Right? And it's hard to open and have compassion because our world feels so unsafe. Right? We watch the news and we get afraid or we hear something online, something's going on. So how do we hold that, the, the, the truth of the insanity of that, uh, that is, it surrounds us in the midst of us opening our heart? Wow, really challenging. So I've been very inspired by Father Gregory Boyle. Um, he wrote this beautiful book called Tattoos on the Heart. And he is the founder of Homeboy Industries in um, East Los Angeles. And I wanted to kind of read a little bit of a story and talk about him because his, his spirit has been affecting me. He's a... He's a um, a priest, and he has been leading, uh, he led a church, the poorest church in California was his church for many years, right, in this block of, he started Homeboy Industries in the 80s, because there was so many killings with gangs, and here, and he is really interesting, because he looks exactly like Santa Claus, so he walked in all these projects, and basically, he set up this place where homeboys could come who wanted to get out of the life and they would do jobs and training and counseling and they have a whole group of people there they had all these dedicated people doing tattoo removal right because they would come in and they would have tats all over these like gang tats on their faces i mean how could they possibly move forward with their life with that and they would get them clothes and skills and therapy and support Right, dedicated to this group to heal this community. And so he has been there for almost 30 years and he leads masses and marries people and he's buried many people. And um, 
He continues to be a support for thousands and thousands of men who are getting out of this lifestyle. And his compassion is so deep. I mean, he sees every single person as being like, and he refers to them as God's love, right? He's like so non-judgmental. And so I wanted to read this story that he wrote um, to you. And he would often go to jails and all the, all the time he was spending time in jails and juvenile halls because it's there that he would pass out all the information about homeboy industries. Like, I got a job for you when you get out. You can come see me when you get out. I'll hook you up when you get out. I'll help you get out of this lifestyle, right? I'll support you. And so they would go all the time. They were in prisons giving out information. And so sure enough, they, many of them would call him and he would go pick them up and bring them in and set up a whole program. So Homeboy Industries is very inspiring. You can read about it when you um, get uh, off retreat. So um, he writes, at Camp Page, a county detention facility near Glendora. So this is Southern California. He says, I was getting to know 15-year-old Rigo, who was about to make his first communion. The Catholic volunteers had found him a white shirt and a black tie. We still had some 15 minutes before the other incarcerated youth would join us for mass in the gym. And I'm asking Rigo the basic stuff about his family and his life. I ask him for some reason about his father. Oh, he says, he's a heroin dealer and an addict and never really been in my life. He used to always beat my ass. Fact, he's in prison right now, barely ever lived with us. Then something kind of snaps in him. An image brings him to attention. I think when I was in fourth grade, he began, I came home. I was sent home in the middle of the day. I got into some trouble at school. I can't remember what I did. When I got home, my father was there. He was hardly ever there. He looks at me. My dad says, why did they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, If I tell you, you promise you won't hit me? He just said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. Rigo is caught short in the telling. He begins to cry. And in moments, he's wailing and rocking back and forth. I put my arms around him. He is inconsolable. When he's able to speak and barely so, he says he beat me with a pipe. With a pipe. When Rigo composes himself, I ask, what about your mother? He points some distance from where we are to a tiny woman standing by the gym's entrance. That's her over there. He pauses for a beat. There's no one like her. Again, some image appears in his mind and a thought occurs. You know, I've been locked up for more than a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see my sorry ass? Then quite unexpectedly, he sobs with the same ferocity as before. Again, I hold him. It takes him some time to reclaim his breath and ability to speak. Then he does, gasping through his tears. Seven buses, 
She takes seven buses. You're worth it, though. (laughs) That's what Father Boyle says back to him. So, reading stories about people's lives, how can we ever know what somebody else has been through? And that's where this, like, the judging and our hatred or our fear becomes ignorance in some way because we we don't really know and to live a life of service to alleviating suffering for those. It's a joy. And I think about that, and I think when the story about when I was 13 uh, was most impactful, because on some level I signed on, like, I want to be a helper. (laughs) I want to alleviate this, right? And we see those angels all over the world in organizations and frontline workers and Doctors Without Borders staff and and all kinds of people um, showing up. It's beautiful. Pema Chodron, she writes, The only reason we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us that we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to deal with. To the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we'll feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. So that is often what happens You know, we see something and it does trigger us, like shutting down. It triggers some unresolved thing in us, right? We have some part of ourselves we haven't dealt with or not, some part we haven't accepted. That's often what it is, right? What we find unacceptable in others is always what is not acceptable in ourselves, right? We see that. It's like, oh, this fragility, right? This, you know, we learn to open our hearts Step by step, we can learn. So um, also remember when I was working for, when I was uh, younger, I used to work in juvenile hall as well. So I felt touched and I grew up with homeboys, believe it or not. People don't think that now. They think, oh, your name is Spring. You must have been on this hippie colony out and, you know, no, that's not so. (laughs) Often we learn in the most difficult, often say, yes, I'm the lotus that bloomed in the mud, right? And, and many of us are, you know, cheers to all the lotuses that bloom in the mud, right? It's like those, that's the compost, right? And we can use those experiences. All of our difficulties are valuable. I think that's a big shift when we start to see how can this be transformative, right? Instead of asking why, we say how, How can I use it? Not, why did this happen, God? No, right? We start to be like, wait a minute, it happened, but how am I growing from this? Right? How can these things help me open? Right? How can the difficulty help me open? I always appreciate the Tibetan point of view on a lot of things, right? They... My, my teacher, Ranger Rinpoche, uh, he would always say, like, be so thankful for your enemies. Oh, they're so great. They teach you everything about compassion and patience, right? To be thinking of them in that way, you know, people who have done great harm. Do you think like that? <laughs> right? It's a shift, right? Because they're seeing it. Oh, great. I can use this to evoke compassion, right? I see, see how I can grow here. I feel like when we start to make those types of leaps, 
You know, even when something hurts us, how can I learn from this? That is a major shift, right? That's, that's a cutting of the karmic knots right there, right? It's like, okay, this happened, but what am I learning, right? Even though it was hard, maybe I was fired, maybe I was betrayed, maybe my heart's been broken, maybe I have an illness, right? I, would you choose cancer if you knew that it was going to open your heart? <laughs> Right? Like five years of the worst illness that you can think of, the most difficulty, right? Letting go of everything, but at the end, your heart was blasted open. Most people, it's a big decision, right? (laughs) But some of us, it just shows up one day. We don't get to decide, right? It becomes our teacher. And everything in your life, when we look at it from the lens of compassion, becomes our teacher, Right, the flat tired, the difficult person, the you know, the sickness, the you know, being attacked, whatever it is, verbally or physically, you know, all of these things become a piece of that. So when um, I remember when also I was teaching in juvenile hall, and I was running a program. This was maybe t- over ten years ago. And I, I would go in uh, to the different units and teach a one-hour class. And, um, and I would do some of it, a lot of it in the boys' unit. And I would often go to the... They would separate them in juvenile hall in units, right? And they had the youngest and the smallest in this one unit. So if you were tall and older, you, they kind of tried to put you with others like you. So there wasn't maybe a discrepancy like a big 17-year-old with a tiny 13-year-old, right? And I remember I had this class that I would go for, for, it was almost like a year. I would go on Thursdays and I would see this one class. And um, there was this little boy in there. And I say he was little. He, he looked like he couldn't have been more than 13. His name was Marcus. And I would go in. And sometimes the little boys, um, the younger kids, they had a harder time meditating. They would giggle and be like, oh, and make sometimes fart sounds. And like, it was too much, right, for them sometimes. And I would just sit there and like, okay, you know, it's all right. We'll just laugh and then come back to the breath, you know. I started to see mostly what I was doing was being like their mother and just showering them with these loving looks. Like, it's okay, whatever you do during the 10 minutes we're sitting with our eyes closed, right? It's fine. Um... But this little Marcus, he was so physically tiny, and he was about 13, and, and he, he was so excited to see me. I mean, he had this, like, spring, like he would, and that was what they did in the evening. They either stayed in their little cell, or they came to a program that was offered by a volunteer, right, a writing class, or luckily there was people coming in offering them something to do with their mind, right, than just sit in or, or watch a TV thing with a group. You know, this was something positive. And so he was just always there, and he was very devoted, and he would just sit, and I'm meditating, and you know, it was really cute, he was African-American, and just like, just a, so darling. So after a while, I started to ask him more and more about his story, and oh, Marcus, it's so good to see you, and I would give him these huge hugs, and he would just be like in heaven at the end, just melting. And it came to find out when I talked to him that, you know, the classic story, his mother died when he was young, his father was a homeless street person, he went, his, nobody could really take him, and he was in this foster home, and they weren't nice to him, and he ran away. 
And um, his social worker was looking for a new placement for him. And because he was a 12, 13-year-old African-American boy, they had no placement, you know. And so they said, we'll just take you to juvenile hall for one day. Just why you wait eight months later. He didn't do anything. And he's been there being treated like, and I was just like, oh, Marcus, oh, my God. And I would just... The love I had started to develop for this, this, you know, and I kept waiting. Well, is your social worker seeing you? And he's like, I haven't seen her in a couple of weeks. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I'm going to go. And um, I just remember just feeling like, oh, and all of them had stories like that. You know, they all had been abandoned a long time ago. And I just started to see my role there as like some deep mothering. You know, I would just, at the end of my classes, I would just do a hug line for a long time. And the staff would just be like looking, you know, they're like, <laughs> what is going on with you? And, the, you know, and I'd just be like, because I genuinely felt the feeling and they knew it. I would just be like, okay, I hope you're doing well and I'll see you next week. And it would always be sad when I'd be leaving. Marcus had these big brown eyes and we'd just be like, bye, spring. And I just... <laughs> I'd be like, keep meditating, you know, but, you know, and then, and then I had to say goodbye, you know, and every week, and then at some point he disappeared, right, as into the system, off into the world of the, you know, dealing with those causes and conditions, but he opened my heart so much, and um, I always wanted other people to see what I was experiencing, so one time a friend, Alex Katz is a friend of mine who I met who works at the Oakland Tribune. And I told him about my classes. He goes, I don't believe you. <laughs> so I said, come, come. And he did. And I was like in the big article of me doing yoga and hugging them was in the Oakland Tribune a few, like 10 years ago. <laughs> and he was like, wow, my heart is really changed watching you in here. And he had a photographer and, you know, I had to get them in and all that. And it was a beautiful story and it helped promote our organization, the Mind Body Awareness Project. Um, so you never know. He was deeply touched by what he saw. It was like, I had so many ideas about who these kids were, what they needed. And you're right. It's just like attention on some level. You know, it's like, yeah, they need a mom. They didn't have that. You know, so always feeling uh, touched by those stories. The world's in need of the great mother and the great father. <laughs> You know, I always say, you have a group of friends that are always saying, the Divine Mother needs to be healed. And I say, and so does the Divine Father, please. <laughs> right? And it's happening with all of us together. You know, we're growing, growing our hearts into that. I love the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, <laughs> where he writes, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it's in the giving for in the giving that we receive, it's in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in the dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. 
I love that. It's like, that's in a way what we're doing here, right? Instead of hatred, we're sowing love. Instead of sort of doubt, faith in ourselves. And that's what the practice really offers us, right? We're like, we're, we're planting all these seeds in the heart. And the power of love is always just so inspiring when I see acts and I see others and I see the capacity of the human heart and the power of compassion is always so touching. I remember a story I, uh, by the Dalai Lama of uh, maybe like a decade or so ago. Anyway, he was in Bodh Gaya and um, getting ready to do the Kala Chakra a great festival, a great, basically, for world peace. You know, they, some of you might have done it. Temple and I did it in D.C. It's like a 12-day... Um, it's basically, they build a mandala of what is the entire universe, right? You see those Tibetan sun mandalas. And then for days, they bless it, <laughs> right? To uplift the energy of the entire universe. So it's actually really beautiful to go, even if you don't know what's going on. You know, it's all in Tibetan, and there's chanting, and... Um, it's the quality that is the main thing. And so he was getting ready to start, and um, suddenly he got doubled over in pain and had to be taken from his seat, like right before everything was starting, to a hospital immediately. And what happened was he had a hole in his lower intestine, so he had to have an emergency surgery. And so as he's being carried off into this car, he talks about being in excruciating pain, like just this pain that he had never known before. So he's driving in the back of the car, right? And they're taking him. And of course, you can imagine like, oh my God, is he going to live? What's going on? You know, they don't know. And it's a big thing. And, you know, they're, they're in a little caravan trying to get to the, to the hospital. There's no real hospital in Bodh Gaya, so I'm not sure how far they had to travel. Um, so he's there and he's in the back and he's looking out of the window kind of doubled over in pain and he sees a little boy along the side of the road and he sees a little boy and the boy has polio on half his body. That's what he saw, that he was, his body wasn't working on half his side and he obviously uh, did not have a family, just how unkept he looked. He probably lived outside and he was pushing a bicycle. He was describing it uh, and with the head flat tires and was completely, so you imagine a struggle was happening, right? This little boy. And he looks at this child and his heart, he said, burst in compassion. And he started to do compassion practice, just naturally seeing this child on the side of the road, right? And so then he was like, and then all my pain just disappeared like that. <laughs> right? You know how he talks kind of like that. And so... A lot of times the Tibetans believe that compassion heals us. It's the opposite. Instead of depleting us, it can have a healing effect. Uh, and the Tibetan tradition, Tonglin, where you actually take on the suffering of the world inside of you, has been reported to cure leprosy and, and pneumonias and people, you know, and it's the devotion of the energy that you embody. It does have, it's like, it's your nature, your true nature coming alive, right? So it does have a healing effect on the heart and the mind. Just think about for a moment where you felt a huge wave of unconditional love, how that felt in your body, in your mind. Like even one second, we love that. Just sometimes we go long times without feeling that, right? But just one moment can have a lasting impact. I talked about that on the first night, how somebody has a retreat experience, you know, 
one moment of just this love so beautiful. They never forget that one second, that one minute. The body itself gets healed from that. It's like the energy. You sit here long enough, your body starts to feel the waves of your metta, right? It might start rocking like this, and then this wave comes, and, and we feel everything being aligned. They say that metta practice actually, it works on a DNA level, jhanic absorption, metta jhana, concentration that comes with the metta as it gets boundless. I felt that when I was on my meta retreat that things on a cellular level were being cleaned out. You know, it was like a, it was a purification, right? And it doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficulties. It just means that in those moments, this, this, this energy is, is, is coursing through us that is healing energy, right? It's aligned with who we are. I like this quote by Eduardo Galeano. He says, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) (laughs) And you feel that with the meta after a while. Like, there's a fiesta happening, you know, in my heart. (laughs) And we can celebrate that, right? Instead of the chronic tightness and suffering, our body usually feels things with the meta starts to open, right? We feel the openness. I'm sure you feel it in Qigong, huh? It's like, wow, this beautiful flow of energy. You can trust that. Like, trust your experience. Trust those moments that you have. There's a, there's a truth in them when we're practicing. There's, there's a truth in that. And understanding, the last part I want to share about compassion is just the understanding of the interconnectedness part. This is really key to forgiveness, to opening, to, is to understand this idea, right? This idea that we all come from the similar source, the same root, right? We're part of this tree of life. Joanna Macy, the ecologist and teacher, she says, our lives are inextricably interwoven as nerve cells in the mind of a great being. Right? So we're all, we're all working. Imagine we're all cells in this great field working together. George Washington Carver also says it like this. He says, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong, because someday you will have been all of these. So we're, we're all of it, you know? We're everything. And so to understand this interconnectedness is really important. You know, we see oneness in all things, right? That we see everybody that we meet, if we can kind of understand that we're meeting an aspect of our own self, (laughs) right? Even if it's difficult, right? I didn't want to look at this right now, (laughs) but here it is showing up and it's outside, right? It seems outside. But we start to see this uh, truth operating more and more clearly. And then that becomes a motivation. Because of the interconnectedness, your desire to awaken gets strong. 
right? For me, I would never have been able to keep going with the level of retreat practice that I did and meeting these difficulties. If it was just me, it wouldn't have mattered anymore. But then when I'd be in these deep places, years on retreat, I just came back from South America a year, 10 months in the jungle, working it out. (laughs) I keep going because it's like, oh, for the benefit of all beings, then I suddenly it comes to me, yes, I have to get up. I, I did more compassion. Let's pay, you know, it gives me this courage. It gives me wings, right? It gives me wings so I can, I can keep going, right? It gives me a power and that's the bodhicitta, right? Bodhi enlightened, you know, the chitto is mind, the enlightened mind, right? And the bodhisattva is the hero, right? It's the hero's journey, Right? We're all in Star Wars. It's the, the Luke and Leia, and the, you know they save the all beings, right? And we have these qualities. It's archetypal in us too. We love those stories and others, but can we start to see that maybe a little bit for ourselves, right? In our own life, we start to move in that direction as we practice and we grow. I like this quote, too, by Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. He wrote that in a prison. <laughs> right? He couldn't have done what he did unless he saw this. Right? Because it wasn't even about him. It was like, I'm going to keep going with something that's bigger than me. I'm going to free you from your own hate. Right? It's like, wow. This is power of love. Power of compassion. It's no small thing. And it's no small thing what you're doing here. And I hope that you have a deep level of respect for yourself. <clears throat> Meta is also self-respect. <laughs> it's being able to look in the mirror and say, thank you <laughs> for your efforts. I respect what you're doing here. Right? We sort of lose that in our culture of it, self-respect. Right? It's not pride. It's not that. It's not ego. It's valuing your spiritual self. It values the part of you that is here and aspiring. You know, this is like we're respecting that. Our Buddha nature is what we're respecting. So to see that is really important. So compassion. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> I'm glad we're here together. So let's just sit for a moment. And we'll just kind of Breathe together in this safe, protected space in here, so cozy.
And may our hearts open in boundless compassion for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Omani Padme Hum. Thank you for your attention and you can enjoy the stars are now out a little bit walking under the stars and then for those of you who have energy the chanting in the evening is very sweet it's like a good night lullaby so if you're up for it come back and join us thank you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.